welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. Uh, let's talk about social credit scores. Right? Have, have you, are you familiar with this? This is, this is really a thing. Uh, social credit scores are uh, now a part of what uh, Chinese citizens can opt into, and by the year 2020, every Chinese citizen uh, will be opted into this. It functions kind of like a credit score on that same sort of 350 to 950 scale, except instead of being based on how you pay your bills, debt-to-income ratios, all of those things, the social credit score looks at who your friends are online. What are your daily phone habits? What kind of things do you buy off of Amazon? What does your Google search history say about you? I mean, think about, think about how much Amazon, Google, and Facebook know about you. They know you better than, they, than you know yourself. They know the real you because you can't hide from Google. Right? No matter how many times you clear your history, Google knows. Google knows, right? Amazon, right? Amazon, we have all, many of us have invited Amazon to just listen into all of our conversations because it's really convenient, right? With the, the echoes and the echo dots and all of these things. We've just said, yeah. Let me just give you every information about my daily life, right? This is the, the internet, the cloud, the big eye in the sky knows so much about you. And what's interesting is that in China, they're taking all that data and they're beginning to build profiles. So if your friend starts saying bad things about the Chinese government, guess what your social score does? goes down. If you buy the right sort of things, if you don't visit trashy websites, your score goes up. In fact, they're already starting to tie things. Like if you have uh, a high social credit score, your internet will be better. The bandwidth of your internet depends on how good of an internet user you are. They are starting to tie dating apps to your social credit score. So, okay, so this is all like really weird, crazy, big brother stuff, right? And it's, it's in Wired Magazine. This isn't something off of like some sort of crazy thing. This is Wired Magazine just last week had an article about this. And we hear this, and for some of us, that is just frightening beyond measure, right? The idea that all of the information that can be aggregated about us online is going to be used to score us as a human is a little bit terrifying. But there's also this part of us, some of us, that's intrigued by this, right? Well, I wonder what my score is, right? I wonder, and I've got a pretty good group of friends. My friends are high achievers. I have some good social circles that I'm in. My phone knows that I go to the gym several times a week. 
right? And that I go to the right coffee shops. The geolocation says that I go. I, I bet you my score would be pretty good. I wonder, wonder how good my internet could get, right? And we sort of look at it and we kind of go, maybe, maybe. And you know what? Maybe even if my score wasn't so good, what? I can, I can make it better. I can, I can hustle my score, right? We have this ambition inside of each one of us that when we think about our social credit score, it begins to give us a window into the way that we are driven by ambition. And think about it. For, for a certain generation of people, uh, the idea behind ambition is I want to live the American dream. I want the quarter acre of land with the big house in the good neighborhood with the good schools. That's sort of, uh, my ambition is leading me to the great American dream house with the picket fence and the driveway and the dogs and the kids. For other generations, the idea of ambition drives us towards independence. I'm going to work hard so I can do what I want and so that no one else can tell me what to do. I'm going to work hard so that I'm independent of everyone else. And for others, ambition is just hardwired into us generationally. We just know instinctively that we work hard because when we work hard, that's how we get significance. Hustling, ambition, they are the cardinal virtues of our culture. Who is universally respected? People who hustle. No matter how different they are than you, no matter how much you may disagree with them, got to give it credit, they're hustling. They're working hard. Right? Why do we love the story of the person who, against all odds, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made something incredible out of themselves? Think about the sort of pantheon of the hustlers in our culture, right? Steve Jobs, an orphan who becomes Steve Jobs. I mean, his name is literally synonymous with unbelievable success. And part of his mythos is, well, he was, he was an orphan who was adopted and, you know, I mean, he, man, you want to talk about hustling. He got fired from his company and then they had to beg to bring him back years later. These sort of characters in our minds show us that Ambition and hustling is our great cultural value. What's interesting is this same thing was true uh, in the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi was an up-and-coming city in the Roman Empire. When uh, Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus sort of took over the world, when there was the, the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, a lot of these little cities became big cities because they were on the borders of these roads. They, they were in these trade routes. And so these cities, all of a sudden, that were farming villages, became metropolises where there was all sorts of new money to be made. And Philippi was exactly that. And what's interesting is Paul takes the idea of Christmas, takes the idea of the incarnation of Jesus, and he shines a light on the hustling and ambition in the city of Philippi using this idea of Jesus becoming man. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to see how Paul does that, 
And what we're going to see is that we like to romanticize Christmas. We like the very sort of the, the nice, precious moments, nativities, and the warm and fuzzy feelings of the shepherds and the angels and all those nice things. And we romanticize Christmas and miss the way that Christmas is a critique of how we live our lives. So let's do this. Uh, let's open our Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to read the first 11 verses. They'll be on the screen. I'll be reading them out loud. So if you would, stand with me as we read Philippians 2. Paul says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, not, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So while hustling and ambition are something that are hardwired into most of us, Paul has some very strong and direct things to say. Paul has opened up the letter of Philippians and, and he is in jail and he's writing to this church and he sort of starts this chapter by saying, look, if Jesus is true, if there's anything that Jesus teaches us, it's that we need to be looking out for others, not looking out for our own selves. Paul begins with something that is wildly counterintuitive. You need to be looking out for others and not looking out for yourself. That, that does not compute naturally to us. Maybe if we were raised in the church and, and since the, the pastor guy's up there saying it, like, I know that it's right. But when you start to think about the fact that you should look out for the needs of others more than you look out for the needs of yourself, there's something in the back of your mind that's going, yeah, but. There's something that creeps up in the corners of your heart that goes, maybe for some people. Like, maybe I should look out for the needs of not. Not everybody. That's impossible. Let's not, let's not start walking down that road. That's, no. Right? Not exactly. And yet, this is what Paul begins with. He begins by saying, do nothing from selfish ambition. That's so hard because our culture rewards 
selfish ambition. Our culture says selfish ambition is what gets you to the top. You have got to look out for yours and then help others, right? It's, it's, the, it's the airplane mask principle, right? Please fix your mask before fixing the mask of others, right? We've ignored that a thousand times as we've been on airplanes, and yet culturally, we live our lives like that, right? I'm going to make sure I get my money right, and then I can talk about helping you. I'm going to make sure that I accomplish my goals, and then I can help you, right? Think about the times when you're in school. Hey, I need help with this test. Can you help me study? Yes. I'll meet you at the library after I'm done studying for my test. Thank you very much. You won't cut into my study time. We all are plagued by selfish ambition. And then Paul says, and count others as more important than yourself. Paul is laying it on thick, and if we are honest, this is just not a picture of who we are. And the reason why, the reason why ambition is so ground into us is because what we believe is that ambition can make us our own God. Ambition gives us control. If I am successful, if I get the job that I want, if I get the salary that I want, if I work hard enough, I can achieve enough to where everything is inside of my control. Subtly, that's what you believe. And I know it's true because it's what I believe too. I want so hard to be able to work and fix and make everything happen. What's the problem with that, though? What's the thing that we know about that? No matter how ambitious or talented or hardworking we are, there are so many things that are always outside of control. I, I absolutely love Aaron Sorkin. Uh, he's a screenwriter. He's done a number of TV shows and movies. He did uh, The West Wing. He did Moneyball. Um, he did Studio 60. And he did a show called Newsroom. And it's really interesting because the show Newsroom is in so many ways a picture of what Paul is getting at in this passage. In Newsroom, you have these, these anchors and these executive producers, and they're sort of in a fake CNN type of news company. And all of them are ambitious. All of them are trying to make their brand, to make things work, to do what they want, to shape their lives. But what they can't see and what the show kind of gets at over and over again is, no matter how talented you are, you can't control everything around you. Stuff is going to happen that you will never see coming that you cannot control. And I don't care how ambitious, I don't care how hard you hustle, it never gives you the kind of control that it promises. Which we know but we don't like to admit. We know that no matter how hard we hustle, there's always stuff that's out of our control. But what we think is, yeah, yeah, but if I'm hustling, I'll be able to, I'll be able to handle it. This is the lie of ambition. The lie of ambition is the word here. It gives us control. 
What's interesting, though, is that if we have been around the church for a long time, if we've had a relationship with Jesus, our ambition takes on a, a really kind of seedy, dark form, too. Here's what it looks like. When you see somebody stumble, when you see somebody do something wrong, what does your heart do? Does your heart say, oh, that's awful. Oh, that's terrible. Or is there a part of you that says, oh, it's not that guy. Is there a part of you that goes, well, that's too bad for them, but I have ranked up a little bit. My, my religious credit score is a little bit better. My heaven power rankings are a little bit more because that person has now dropped below me on the list. You see, so many times the way that we approach our relationship with Jesus has all the same markings of personal ambition. I'm going to get, do the most good things so that I have the most Jesus points. And when you mess up and you lose Jesus points, that's a shame. Because I'm going to keep going and giving my Jesus points. You see, the same way that we do that is the same root of ambition that's in our hearts. We are always looking around to check, how good am I? Am, am I a good Christian? How do we answer that question? Most of the time we look around us and go, okay, I know these five people at my office are Christians. I'm better than three of the five. I'm all right. I know that these people at the gym are Christians, and I know how often they go to church. I'm doing better than them. This is ambition baptized into Jesus-looking religion. And it is just as deadly. It's, I see it in my heart. Whenever, whenever I hear of a church that's not doing well, does my heart go out to them? Does my heart break? Do I go, how can I help another church flourish? Or do I start going through my mind going, who do I know that goes to our, that church that make a good fit at City Church? The way that my heart is corrupted by ambition is that. Is that I'm not willing to sacrifice for others, but only for myself. And Paul looks at this. He looks at the way that the, the church in Philippi, and in so many ways, the church in St. Petersburg, acts. And he says, what you need to do is see Jesus. Is see the incarnation of Jesus. And he, so he turns, after he sort of lays out what Jesus is, or what we are not, he says, now let's look at Jesus. What was Jesus' ambition like? Was he upwardly mobile? Did Jesus have all the right friends? Did Jesus, what was Jesus' social credit score had that existed at the time? No, he says, look, the first thing that he says about Jesus is he didn't account equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be held on to. Jesus was so willing to look outward, so willing to care about the interest of other people, 
that when it came to leaving heaven, he was willing to let that go. All of the riches and pleasures of heaven, he said, I am willing to let go of that for the sake of my people. I'm willing to let go go of that. His ambition was downward. This passage sort of has this stair step that Jesus left heaven and became a human. And if that wasn't enough, he left heaven, became a human, and, and was treated and made himself out to be like a servant. And if it wasn't enough that the God of heaven stepped out of heaven and became a human, gross, and became a servant, ah, but he also subjected himself to death. There is a downward movement of Jesus' humility. And it's always focused on others. You see, while our hearts are broken and messed up in a way that always chases selfish ambition, Jesus broke that cycle by not chasing his own selfish ambition, but giving it up. By being found in the form of servant. Even to the point of death. And then Paul says, even death on the cross. Because what Jesus went through on the cross was the ultimate humiliation. Jesus didn't hustle so that he could have the right kind of life. Jesus, again and again and again, laid down power. To the point of death on the cross. And when Paul says that, everybody in Philippi would have known. Philippi was a site of a major battle in the Roman Empire. And Rome had a habit, when they had defeated an enemy, they were a take-no-prisoners kind of army. And anybody who was left alive afterwards, they had perfected a way to show their power. Rome had perfected a way to embarrass, shame, mock, and tortured you all at the same time. And they would line the streets with anybody who dared go up against them. And the way that they did this, this like art form of emotional and physical torture was crucifixion. And that's what Jesus went through. It was extremely physically brutal. It was emotionally shameful as you hung naked for the world to see as the Roman soldiers spit on him, spit on Jesus. But Jesus went through another level, which was the spiritual pain of taking the hell that your hustling and mine deserved. See, Jesus takes on all of my brokenness, takes on all of your brokenness. And the good thing is the story doesn't end there. Because he rose from the dead. And, and Paul says, and so because of what Jesus did, because Jesus stepped down, 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 had downward ambition, God exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. The reason why Jesus can be worshipped is exactly because he broke the cycle of our hustling and ambition by moving downward. From heaven to human, to servant, to crucified. But Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus forgives our sins. And God says that every knee will bow, that he is now Lord.
And so as we look at this text, here's where we find ourselves this morning. Since Jesus has taught us another way, a way besides hustling and ambition, a way besides improving our social credit scores with those around us, a way besides selfish ambition. Since He is Lord, we can sacrificially work for the success of others. What would your life look like if you sacrificed and worked hard so that other people succeeded? What would your life look like if you took the fall for something at work so that someone else didn't get in trouble? What would your life look like since Jesus is Lord if we hustled for the sake of others' advancement? You see, Jesus gives us our time. He gives us our treasure. He gives us our talents as a mean, a means of serving others. As we look at Christmas and as we look at the new year, as we look at the way we hustle, Jesus does not say that all ambition is bad, but that selfish ambition is. And what he calls us to, when we reflect on the good news of his gospel, that despite the fact that my ambition is so very selfish, he has died for me and forgiven me. And as I live into his new life, what he does is not say, now throw away your ambition. He says, use that ambition to love and serve others. To hustle for the sake of my community that I'm building around you. Not for yourself. And he calls us all to begin to repent of the way that we climb. The ways that we try to socially climb, financially climb, way that we try to spiritually climb by stepping on others and being self-righteous. God calls us to leave that behind and begin to live a new sort of life where He is Lord, where He is in control, and where instead of control, we begin to turn to Him and trust. Let's pray.